Welcome to the Vertical Church Podcast. Now, here's Pastor Josh Butcher with today's message. How many of you enjoy vacations? Raise your hand. You like, how many of you would like to be on vacation right now? You're like, man, the way you start in this message, I want to be on vacation right now, Pastor. I don't want to be here. Um, well, today is, is, is another day in our dog days of summer. So when you leave today, you get a little taste of vacation. We have creamsicles waiting for you. Did you know that tomorrow is the National Creamsicle Day, right? I don't even know that was a real thing, but evidently it is. We're celebrating, so you get a five-minute vacation. When you leave, you get to enjoy a creamsicle. I think they're only 100 calories, all right? And besides, because you're in church today, the calories don't count, right? Um, the, Lord, the Lord protects you from those. But um, I love vacation. Uh, we talked about our ideal vacations last week. Um, I came across this story recently of a guy, he's a dentist in Maryland, um, who, who had a conference that he needed to attend in Portugal. Um, why he had a dentist conference in Portugal, I do not know, but he had a conference that he wanted to attend, and on his bucket list, he had, all, he had for years wanted to visit and, and do a vacation in Granada, Spain. He, he, he was so, it was on his bucket list. And when he found out he was going to this conference in Portugal, it's so close that he thought, this is my chance. And so he, he booked tours and, and he booked his plane tickets early so that he could go and spend a few days there. And he booked trains and lodging and he had it all worked out. And, and then he gets on his flight and his first flight takes him to London, which makes perfect sense. So he flies into London, about 10 hours, all the way across the Atlantic. He lands in London. He goes to his gate. He gets on the next plane, and he's so excited about this, this, this once-in-a-lifetime trip to Spain and Granada. It's going to be awesome. The flight's supposed to be about two hours, he figures. And so when the plane had been up for two hours, he started going on so he looked and checked on the you know you can check the screen on the seat in front of you and he noticed they were flying west and so he grabs a, a flight attendant and he says excuse me if we're going to Granada why we're going to Spain why are we flying west and she's like Spain we're headed to the West Indies we're going to Grenada he's in the middle of the flight Granada Grenada one letter, 4,000 miles apart. It took him three days just to, just to land and, and, and yell at the people at the airport for not, you know, they, they, he, anyway, yell at himself, all that stuff. And finally, he gets, he gets back to Europe just in time for his conference, totally missed out on Granada. It's a beautiful place, but he missed out. Huge miscommunication, really expensive, just one letter. And the, the, the same thing is real easy to happen in the church. You see, we could be headed towards one destination in our mind. Last week, we talked about being devoted to the mission. And we can have an idea and a picture. We're going to point those who are far from God to life in Jesus. But it's real easy to be content with what we have here and forget that our church exists for those out there. One letter. One letter. There's only one letter difference between here and there. But when it comes to our mission as the church, it couldn't be further. It's like Grenada and Granada. Totally different continents, totally different parts of the world. 
You see, God, God delivered us. God brought us out of the darkness. He's, he's, he's healed us from sin and abuse and addiction. And it's easy to focus our efforts on who, who, the, the, the people who are here, saving the people who are here, keeping happy the people who are here. But the heart of God is not just for the people who are here. His heart beats for those who are out there. And so we have to make sure that in our efforts to be devoted to the mission, we don't end up at the wrong destination because of one letter. Because of one letter difference. So how do we do that? Really the question is, right, like how do we live as, as followers of Jesus? How do we live? And, and if this is your first or second time, if you're kind of just scoping out church trying to figure out like is this thing for me or not, this is a great day to be here because, because you probably have... Uh, uh, preconceived ideas about the church, and we're going to talk a little bit about those today. Uh, you, you probably have an idea of why the church exists, and and it might not like you might not be sure about it. Today, you kind of get an insider's perspective on on what what it is that we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to live as followers of Jesus, recognizing that our mission is, is focused to reach those out there, but if we get distracted by trying to keep those in here, then we end up in a totally different destination. And so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about it in such a way to, to ask ourselves, like, how do we live? What does it look like to live as a Christian? This is week two of, of uh, the church is alive. And to do that, we're going we're gonna to do this. I want you to, if you have a physical Bible with you, uh, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 1 and take the little ribbon that you have that, that, that just like flies out and slide it there. Okay, Acts chapter 1, put the ribbon there, then go backwards to Jeremiah chapter 29. If you don't know where Jeremiah is, go to the table of contents, and it'll tell you the page number, and you can start there, and you'll find it a lot faster, all right? So Acts chapter 1, ribbon, Jeremiah 29, that's where we're going to start. If you're on your phone, um, you, can, you can bookmark Acts 1 so you can pull it up easier, and then go to Jeremiah 29, all right? If, if you're on your phone, if you have the YouVersion app, you can actually follow directions on the back of the program. Program, and that's all taken care of for you. So let me give you a little context about what's happening in Jeremiah at this point, okay? So um, there was a guy named Abraham. <laughs> Let's just go all the way back. There's a guy named Abraham, and, and he had a special relationship with God. He trusted God. He had faith in God, and it says it was credited to him as righteousness. And God, because of this relationship, this faith, this trust, that Abraham had, God made, God made him a promise. And he said, I'm going to give you and all of your descendants this land. Uh, it, was, it was called Canaan. We read about it in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. And, and, and then Abraham eventually, you know, his, his lineage, they become this massive people group, right? And God says, you're going to outnumber the sands on the, uh, on, the, on, the, on the shore. It's just going to be more than the stars in the sky. I'm going to bless you. And eventually, I'm going to use the blessing that I put on you and your, your, the, this whole people group to change the world through the, through the Savior, through the Messiah. And so um, it took a little while to get things rolling, right? Like Abraham, his wife, they didn't have kids for a long time, and, and they finally had Isaac, and then, and then Isaac, and then Jacob came, and then Joseph, uh, you know, and he went to, you know, he was sold and into, into slavery, Egypt, and then all of a sudden the famine, then all of his family show up, right? Like the, when you finally land a good job that pays money, how all your family just kind of shows up, 
You know, it's like what Joseph dealt with. But anyway, um, but, but what happens is that the whole family, and it's just like, it's just this multitude of people now. They end up in slavery in Egypt. And, and for hundreds of years, they're there and they're not in the promised land. That's what they called it because it was the promised land. It was tied. It was connected to this, this geographical location. And so then this guy, this guy was born. His name was Moses. And God raised Moses up and, and you know, you let my people go and Charlton Heston. And it was great. And then um, they, they, y'all don't even know that because you don't even know what movie I'm talking about. It's cool, right? Whatever. Um, so, so Moses, like, he leads the people out. And they, but it's still the, they don't go into the land because a journey that should have taken them just like 40 days took them 40 years. And a whole generation of people died off. And then finally, Moses didn't even get to go in there. Finally, they get into the promised land. And it's got that new land smell. <laughs> you know, it's like... Yeah, Canaan, right? The land flowing with milk and honey. So you know it's like something out of Willy Wonka. Or like I don't, I don't know what flowing with milk and honey means, but it's got to be like Willy Wonka factory, okay? So the thing is, like, they finally, they, for hundreds of years, they've got this image of what God can do in their family. Now they're like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. But, but almost immediately, they start drifting from God. And they start becoming like the people around them. Now, they were called to be different. They were called to be peculiar. They were called to worship no other God but God. But, but as soon as they kind of enter into the land, they, well, they, the first thing they do, they stop honoring God's law in a very few specific ways. And one that's really important was the Sabbath. They stopped honoring the Sabbath. Now, if you're not familiar with what the Sabbath is, the basic idea that most of us are familiar with is uh, the, the one day of the week where you rest, right? Like uh, God rested on the seventh day, so we're supposed to rest on day seven. We're supposed to take a Sabbath day's rest, work six days, rest one day. You know, that's, that's kind of how it says it in the Old Testament. But it wasn't just one day out of seven. It also was one year out of seven. In other words, as an agrarian culture, as farmers, they were supposed to, to plant crops for six years. But then on the seventh year, God says, you need to let the land breathe. You need to let the land catch its breath, which took faith because now they've got to they've believe and trust God to provide enough for them in the six years that they'll have enough in the seventh year. You know what I'm saying? So, so it takes faith to do that. It takes faith to trust what God says and put him, put him first and follow his direction for your life. But they don't do this. How long do they not do this? For almost 500 years. 490 years, they don't let the land breathe. They're just planting, planting, planting. They never take a Sabbath year's rest. And so God is sending prophets and, and he's, he's sending them and he's calling them out. They didn't want to listen. They're like, we're a nonprofit organization. We don't want to hear from you, right? So... So, so they don't listen, and God's, God's like, I'm going, to, I'm going to raise up kings, and they're going to come, and they will remove you from the land. And they're saying, God would never do that because this is the promised land. Yeah, 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 it might be the promised land, but your enjoyment of the promise is not guaranteed. The promise is unconditional, but your enjoyment of the benefits of the promise is conditional upon you walking in relationship with God, which is the exact same way it is as a believer in Jesus today. Grace... 
Forgiveness is unconditional, but the enjoyment of the benefits of a relationship with God is conditional upon you walking in relationship with him. Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's this, it works the same way for us. We have to abide. We might have ownership of the promise, but we don't enjoy the benefit. But anyway, so God lowers the force field and and the Babylonians, by this time, the country had split into two, and the northern kingdom had just completely gotten annihilated by the Assyrians. But then, but then the Babylonians sweep in. And Judah, that's the, what they were called then, the Judah, Judah is just defeated. And Babylon had a real interesting strategy for defeated peoples. Basically, they would take the cream of the crop, the top leaders, the most gifted, the, the, the brightest, and they would haul them off to Babylon. They would educate them. They would give them jobs. They would put them in, in different levels of their government because they knew this. If we can get the leaders here, the people will follow, and if they stay in Babylon long enough, they'll lose their national identity. It's a very effective means of, of transforming a people group. For example, how many of you hung out with a Philistine this week? I've never met a Philistine. How, any Amalekites around? Gergesites? Jebusites? No. Why? Because they were absorbed and they completely lost their national identity. So Israel knows this. Judah knows this, that, that, that they could completely lose themselves in, in, in the, the culture of the Babylonians. And so what they do is they, they huddle up beside a river outside of Babylon called Kibar. By the river Kibar, they almost form like a refugee camp because they want to hold on to their culture, hold on to who they are. And, and false prophets are like, hey, listen, God's got this. He's going to get us back home by next Tuesday, right? And Jeremiah says, okay, I got good news and bad news. The good news is you're going home. The bad news is it's going to be 70 years from now. You're not going home. If you go home, it's going to be like cryo, like Ted Williams go home. You know, you're, you're not going home. Your kids, your grandkids, they, they might get to go home. You're not. You're going to die here because, because you spent 490 years not letting the land have its rest. So the land's going to get 70 years of respite from you. So check out what Jeremiah says, because this is going to give us insight into how, again, we're tracking in the direction of how do we live as Christians, as, as followers of Jesus in this world right here, right now, keeping our mind on those out there while still recognizing that God's doing ministry to those in here, okay? So, so check out what he says, verse 4, chapter 29, if you're looking at the screen, it should be back there. Here's what he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. And this next part, they added this later. This is not inspired. Give your daughters in marriage. I don't believe that a, a bit in the world. Amen from those dads who have daughters. That's not, that's, that's added. That's a later addition. Um, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Verse 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I'm going to preach this morning a message titled, The Church is Alive When the People Live as Exiles. The Church is Alive When the People Live as Exiles. Um, 
how are we supposed to live in this world? What does it look like to be an exile? I feel like we really just need a blueprint. We need a blueprint to tell us, like, what does it look like to be an exile? Because here we've got these Israelites, these people from Judah. They're living in Babylon, but they're living in an enclave. And God speaks to them, and he says, listen, I don't want you living in, in, I don't want you living in a huddle by the river. You know, I don't want you living in a van down by the river. I appreciate that because I was real worried you wouldn't get that joke. Anyway, um, I don't want you living down by the river. I want you to move into the culture. I want you to buy a house. I want you to plant a garden. In other words, I don't want you to pretend that you're in Jerusalem anymore. If you, if you can't live in the city you want, be a blessing in the city where you are. And that's what God is telling them. He's like, I want you to be a blessing in the city where you are. And right now you might think, well, that's great. I'll file that away should I ever be a refugee. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind should I ever find myself in this situation. But you, you, you don't know, do you? Like the New Testament, when it talks about followers of Jesus, it calls us exiles. Did you know that? If you look at James chapter 1 verse 1, we are exiles. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, we are exiles. See, the definition of an exile is someone who lives away from their home country. In other words, this world is not my home. This world is not my home. Jesus says when he's being questioned by Pilate and Pilate's asking him, why, why, aren't you, why, why don't you have your people fighting for you? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. This world is not my home. My home. In fact, Jesus says in, in John chapter 14, he says, uh, do not let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return again so that where I am, you may be also. So I, this world is not our home. In a weird sense, our home is being prepared for us. It's not ready yet, and yet we have kind of caught glimpses of it. It's like we've been on Zillow, swiping through the pictures, catching an image of what, like, ooh, I really like the bathroom. It's great. <laughs> I'll really let you see the carpet on the floor. Yeah, I can't wait to. They're, they're not finished yet. I can't wait to go home. I want to I go, go home. Spoiler alert, God's kingdom is coming here. The book ends, when the Bible ends, when history gets culminated and wrapped up, it's not that we go off somewhere else. It's that God brings home here, and a new heaven and a new earth is created. But currently, we're living in this world, and this world is not our home. Our home is other. It's, it's other. We are from another world. Our technical status is resident alien. Alien because we are not from here. And we, were, we, we died to this world and we were birthed into the kingdom. We were birthed into the world of God. So we are, we, we, we are aliens to this world. We are other. It's, it speaks to our heavenly culture, our heavenly values, our heavenly decision-making process. And yet we are residents. We are here and now. This is our current reality. So how do we live here? How do we live in our current residence yet keeping our hearts set on home? How do we approach life? I think there are two mistakes that a lot of Christians make. And I'm going to try to go through this quickly. Two mistakes that a lot of Christians make, and both of them lead to the same place. 
And the first one is this. I think the first approach that is not the right approach is isolation. I think that we have a tendency in the church circles to separate ourselves from the world, right? Ooh, I got to stay away from the icky Babylonians, so I'm going to go to my holy huddle by the river Kibar and just stay there, and I'm not going to get touched by the vile sin of those Babylonians. And it, it starts with a good desire. It starts with a good heart. I want to stay holy. I want to be set apart. I want to hold on to the truth. But that good desire is the same way the Pharisees got started. We want, we, we, we want, to, we want to be a holy people, so we're going to separate ourselves from the sinners. The problem is when you retreat from the world you're meant to reach, you don't reach the world. When, when you retreat and isolate and separate, you, you actually don't fulfill the mission because the mission is to point those who are far from God to life in Jesus. You can't point somebody who's far from God to life in Jesus if you are isolated from them. Ultimately, it leads to legalism and death because, because death is in the law. This is what kind of the Bible talks about. It's what Paul says. It's like the law brings death, and that's what legalism brings in our lives. It brings death. It's this, it's, this, uh, it's this attempt to have power, but it has no power because we're just trying to be isolated. In other words, when we are living in isolation from the people around us, in an essence, it's saying to the world we're meant to reach, go to hell. Because I'm, my mission is to, is to point you to Jesus, but I'm going to be separated from you because I can't be tainted. I can't be defiled by your, by, by, by your sin. So I'm just going to full-on retreat. Those of you who grew up in fundamentalist uh, homes and churches, you know this, right? Like this is the world. This is the world I grew up in. We are separate from the world. We don't partake in any of that. That's all evil, right? Like, like you just got to stay away. I remember this story. I read in a leadership book, this church was growing and it was expanding and, and things were going great. And so they were building a new facility. Uh, they had outgrown uh, where they were at. They were having multiple services, but they just needed something to, to hold more people because God was just blessing and bringing new people and people were getting saved. And, and so they're sitting around this boardroom and people are throwing in ideas and, hey, what if we, what if we built a gym uh, with our facility? People could come and they could, they could you know, uh, have, have activities like they would do at the Y or their other, the, the playground at the park. They could come here, you know, it'd be a place for our people to come and, and, and ha enjoy that? What if we built a rec center and had fitness equipment and offered classes? Wouldn't that be so great? And there was this guy who's in his mid-60s. He loved Jesus, absolutely passionate about the kingdom of God. He's sitting around the table, and he's usually just real quiet. And then all of a sudden, he just like slams his hand on the table, and everybody like stops, and he looks up, and he says, yeah, if we play our cards right, our people don't ever have to come in contact with a non-believer ever again. And everybody got the point that we shouldn't be looking for fewer opportunities to be around people. We shouldn't be looking for fewer opportunities to be around non-believers. Jeremiah tells the, 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 the Israelites, move into the neighborhood, build a house, plant a garden, get to know the people around you, be in their lives so that you can point them to Jesus because isolation is a trap that leads to irrelevance. When you're isolated, you're irrelevant to the culture around you. And, and, and so does number two. Number two leads to irrelevance too. And the truth is the devil doesn't care which side of the horse you fall off on just as long as you don't ride the horse, right? So he doesn't care if you choose isolation or if you choose the second one. And I think the second one is our temptation. Isolation, that's something that most, for most of us our parents dealt with. 
And it's still in our culture, obviously. It's still going around. But, but I think number two is the bigger issue. It's isolation or it's imitation. Isolation separates from everybody. Imitation with a heart that, it's, again, it usually starts with a good heart. You know, I want to reach people. I want to be around people. And, but what happens is we decide, okay, then I'm going to imitate their values, imitate their behaviors, imitate their attitudes so that I can be just like them. But the problem is, when your heart is to reach the world, but you end up looking just like the world, when you do reach the world, you have nothing to offer the world because you're just like them. You forfeit, you forfeit the message that you have to offer them. And a lot of times, a lot of times, okay, I've been around the block long enough to know I dealt with this myself when I was in seminary. Nine times out of ten, it starts with some form of theological liberalism. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about theology. It starts with some decision that says, well, I know what Jesus teaches, but I'm not really sure that's what he meant. Because I'm looking for an excuse to do something that sin is already tempting me and luring me away. So I start moving away from different teaching, even though if I have a conversation with you, you can't find a single scripture that any remotely resembles what you're trying to trying to pass off, right? And so it's like, it's like, I just think that oh, I want to, I want to fudge this area a little bit and, and these choices and then kind of moral and I don't really know and, and I want to reach the world and, and, and let's just get real. It's really challenging to accurately represent Jesus when you're pissed drunk. I just wanted to go get a beer with my friends. Hey, cool, man. Go get a beer with your friends. But when one becomes six becomes ten and you can't spell salt and light, it's really hard to be salt and light. We, we forfeit prophetic distance. It's a really fancy word that I want you to pick up on. In order to be a prophetic voice in a culture, you have to be close enough to be heard, but far enough away to be able to speak into. And when we are absorbed into the culture, we have no prophetic voice. We can't speak into it because we have been absorbed by it. We, it the imitation doesn't work. <laughs> It just, it, it looks bad. When we approach issues like sex and marriage and money and career and family and hurt and forgiveness and sickness, when we approach those things just like the world approaches it, we don't represent the Father. And that's what we've been called to do. To represent the love of God. To represent, here's what a citizen of heaven is like. I'm, a, I'm from a different world. And, and can I just be honest with you? Is that not the definition of hypocrisy? You claim to have access to this supernatural power, but when I get to know you, you're just like me. Like there's no difference in your values. There's no difference in your behavior. There's no difference in the way you uh, parent. There's no difference in the way you, 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 you relate to your spouse. You're I thought you were different but you're not, which is why 66% of millennials, when they hear the word Christian, they think of the word hypocrite. 
which is a big deal because it's the largest generation on the planet. And we wonder why we struggle reaching people from 18 to, 18 to what, like 32? Why don't they want to come to church? Because, because we've been imitating the world for so long that they don't, they don't want what we're offering because we're not offering anything different. This is why the tether is the church. This is why the tether is the church because when we come to church, we're reminded of our home country. Oh, yeah, that's like the world that I'm from. That, that love that I felt, that worship that we offered to God when his presence descended and, and I felt the, the, the warmth of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, that's what my home is like. I forgot for a second. Now I'm going to go back in the world with the aroma of Jesus in my life. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to light up the world. It's, it's really hard to be a light in the darkness when your batteries are dead, you know? Anyway, so what do we do? How, what's, what's the blueprint? I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta wrap this up. What's the blueprint? I really wanted to find another word that started with I because that's just a really preacher thing to do. And so, because we've got isolation, we've got imitation. And I thought integration, and, and it's like, well, that kind of works. And I thought infiltration, but that seemed too violent. Like, we're gonna infiltrate the enemy's land. That's not what we're I thought the, the, a, good, a great word, it's a Bible word, incarnation, that really works, but I have to explain it a lot. And so this is, the, the Lord led me to Acts chapter 1, and it just popped, and it doesn't start with I, but it makes a whole lot of sense. Check this out, Acts chapter 1, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, he's given the final instructions to his followers, and it's super important. Look what he says, verse 6, he said, it says, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, Lord, we're tired of being exiles can we go home? When, when are we going to go home, Jesus? Are we home yet? Look what he says, verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my... And what's the word? How do we live in the world as exiles? Do we, do we isolate? Do we imitate? Jesus says, No. You witness. You live as a witness. You will be my witness. Now, that word witness is a legal word. It, it literally means uh, one who is serving by giving testimony. It means to testify in a trial-type setting of what you've seen, heard, and experienced. So in other words, Jesus says, in this world, I don't know when you're going to get to go home, but when you're in this world, don't isolate because you can't be a witness if you're off in your holy huddle. And don't imitate because you can't be a witness when, when you're not witnessing to something other. I want you to be a witness in this world. I want you to testify with your life that the kingdom of God is coming into the world. I want you to be a representative of the Father testifying to the world and the culture around you what he is like. I want you everywhere that you go to bring the presence of heaven into the here and now. I want you to be salt in a world that's lost its flavor. I want you to be light in a world that's trapped in darkness. And it might cost you your life. The word that's used for witness is the same word that we use the word martyr. It's the same word. It might cost you your life. It might be difficult. It might be hard. But I promise you, as you do this, you will introduce people to me. 
Do you remember the person that, like, like have you ever had a special introduction? Yeah. Did any, how many of you were introduced to your spouse? Raise your hand. If you were introduced to them, nobody? You just, like, you just met them all of a sudden? You introduced yourself? Is that how it worked? Nobody? Okay, let me tell you my story since you can't relate at all. Um, I was introduced to Hope. We would have never met had somebody else not introduced us. Her name was Kena. I've talked about her a couple times. Her name was Kena Warren at the time. It's Kena Cox now. Uh, but, um, but she introduced her, introduced us. And I remember that night I was like, wow. And Kena said, you should get to know her. And I said, okay, awesome. I want to do it. So she made the introduction. When it, when it, and she will forever be part of our story because she made the introduction. When it comes to Jesus, we have the opportunity to be the people who make the introduction. But you can't do that if you're living in isolation. And you'll never do that if you're living in imitation. The only way you get to make the introduction is if you live as a witness. And it doesn't mean you go slap your coworkers with the Bible or go weird on them. That's isolation, right? Like that's isolation. And it doesn't mean you live just like them because that's imitation. It just means simply that you live your faith authentically, genuinely, and honestly because we are not a witness to the world when we mirror their culture. We are a witness to the world when we model what they can become. Witness. That's how we live in exile. We live as witnesses. God could have gotten his message out any way he chose. He could take over all of our devices right now and just appear on them. And he's like, I'm God. Yo, listen to me. Jesus is real. Look up in the sky. Come and bow down and worship me. And he doesn't. (laughs) Be a lot easier if he did, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, no, 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 no. Here's my strategy to to, to tell the the whole world. Here's my strategy to get the whole world to, 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 to receive my son, you, living as a witness. That's God's strategy. Living so changed by what you've experienced, so marked by the culture of heaven that you testify to a different world. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will work and the Holy Spirit will empower you and and you'll be my witnesses. You'll testify about the goodness and grace and the forgiveness that you've received. You'll testify about how God, how, how your father can break an addiction. You'll testify how he can heal a marriage. You'll testify to how he can bring breakthrough in your life. You'll testify to how he can change destructive behavior patterns and make you new. And you'll testify to how he brought hope to your darkness. And you'll testify to how he brought joy to your brokenness. And you'll testify to how he brought peace to your trouble. And that doesn't happen if you you live in isolation or imitation, it only happens when you live as witness. The church is alive when the people live as exiles. How do we live as exiles? We live as witnesses. Let me pray for you this morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. We always appreciate hearing how God is moving in your life. We all have a story to tell and we'd love to hear yours. Please visit verticalchurch.tv and click on the little pencil icon called Amen Corner to tell us your story. Also, if you'd like to support the ministry of Vertical Church financially, you can do so by clicking the giving link at verticalchurch.tv. Thank you again for taking the time to join us as we point those far from God to life in Jesus.